Good morning. We are finishing Mark chapter 9 this morning, uh, finishing our brief study in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, this is, we started this back with the feeding of the 4,000 uh, back in Mark chapter 8. And we wandered around through a few sermons, and now we're finishing Mark chapter 9. And our Sunday school lesson is going to be covering this part of the gospel here pretty soon in a couple months. So I'm going to stop with uh, my study in Mark and, and go somewhere else. But we'll finish this little stretch this morning. Those handouts, I, I'm going to have to flip again some between Matthew and Mark. And I thought that having it on one sheet of paper might make this easier to follow. So that's the point of the handouts. We'll be studying Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. And you remember that the last time we um, studied from Mark, the disciples had just finished arguing about who is the greatest. And in responding to that argument, Jesus launches into this extended discussion that really takes up all of Matthew chapter 18 and the last half of Mark chapter 9. And so we're just we're looking at this particular section in Mark 9 in that sermon where Jesus gives the warning about the millstone and tells you that it is better to cut some things off, take extreme measures rather and, and to enter life crippled than to go to hell with a sound body. This is a bit of a tricky passage. Um, there are a lot of twists and turns to it and kind of made my head smoke some of the time as I was studying this. There's some things we have to root out uh, before we can step back and say this is what it's saying. Um, there's questions like, what does Jesus mean by little ones? What does stumbling or causing to sin mean? What does entering life mean? What is what is is he talking about literal hell? Uh, or, I mean, is he talking about Gehenna or, or figuratively talking about the lake of fire when he uses the word Gehenna there? What does cutting off something mean? And we can't just ignore these questions. We're going to have to kind of wade our way through this and be patient. Um, I'm also afraid this is going to be a pretty long sermon. Um, and I don't know if it's a good thing for a, for a preacher to say that up front or not, but it is going to take a while. In fact, I don't think I'm going to be done until 12 o'clock. So fasten your seatbelts. Uh, you know, pinch yourselves to stay awake if you can. And sit on your children. Uh, hopefully I'll turn out to be a false prophet, but I don't think so. So as we go through these, these issues, there, there's a central message here that, that we, we should not be missing, and the central message is that sin is serious, and we have three reasons here for why sin is so serious, and we need to take serious steps against it. Now, even before we read this passage, there's always the risk of getting a little warped if we focus on, you, you can get out of balance here. And I want to warn you up front that we need to keep in mind that we're never going to be sin-free people. We are never going to be totally perfect and flawless. 
And we are always going to have to rely on God's grace and forgiveness. Let's read this. Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now you'll notice if you're looking at a a King James or New King James that verses 44 and verses 46 are not here in the ESV. And they're missing from a lot of other uh, more recent translations. They are are repeats of the phrase where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And And I'm guessing that it was missing from enough important early manuscripts that these committees who did like the ESV or the NIV decided not to include it at all. New American Standard would have it in, in brackets. Now, let's, we're not going to be able to talk about salt is good. I just read that part for context. There's a sermon's worth of argument right there in those last two verses, or three verses. So we're, we're not going to be really focusing on that part. It's, it's mostly 42 through 48. Now let's start with verse 42 here. Millstone. This is not a cute little rock used to sharpen knives. This is a big rock. It's turned by a donkey. In fact, right in the Greek text is actually the word donkey. It's, it's the adjective. It's called a, it's a donkey millstone is basically how it's put. And it kind of annoys me a little bit that none of the translations I'm familiar with actually use the word donkey in here. They just say it's a great millstone. Even the New American Standard which is kind of dogged about being accurate and literal, does not use the word donkey. It just says it's a great millstone. But I think they try to make up for it in the footnote. They say literally a millstone turned by a donkey. So I think it it would have made perfect sense to say, to use the word donkey in here, but there it is. It's a big millstone turned by a donkey. Tying someone to a millstone as a form of execution, probably rang a bell with these disciples. According to St. Jerome, this actually did take place about 25 years earlier in the uprising of Judah, or Judas, I can't remember which, of Galilee. Gamaliel actually mentions this guy over in Acts chapter 5. And the Romans, in an effort to quench this rebellion, actually tied some people, some poor revolters to millstones and threw them into the Sea of Galilee. Pretty, pretty um, terrible way to die. Not as bad as being crucified. 
So that's the warning about the millstone. Who is this warning directed to? Whoever. Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. A couple translations like the New Living and the New Revised Standard will actually make this, if any of you. Now, there's no basis for saying any of you because that might make you think he's, he's specifically talking to the 12 disciples, you know, because they're especially important people. They're especially critical role here. No, there's no basis for saying any of you. It's whoever. I think the reason they may have chosen that translation is because they wanted to avoid saying it would be better for him, and, and they're trying to be kind of gender neutral, so it would be better for you if you say any of you. That's, that's not a good translation. Whoever means any of us who, who calls these little ones to sin. This warning is, is, a, is a candidate we are all here this morning, a candidate for this warning. Now, what does it mean to call someone to sin or to stumble or to be offended or to be hindered? We're going to have to spend some time on this one. Uh, this word, there's a Greek word in here, scandalizo. Who knows if I'm pronouncing that right? Nobody does. It's used four times in this passage. And it's some translations, each time it says calls to sin in the ESV, that's that word scandalizo. Now, some translations make this cause to stumble, others cause to sin, as we see here in the ESV. In the King James Version, it's offend. In the New King James, it did something kind of interesting and said stumble for verse 42 and then calls to sin in subsequent verses. So this word scandalizo, and I'm guessing our word scandalize comes from it, it means different things in different contexts in the New Testament. It's, it's used a fair amount in the New Testament, especially by Jesus. We're going to do a little word study here, and we're going to take some time here because it's important that we get this right. If we don't, we're going to be kind of off track for the rest of this entire sermon. It's way too early to be off target. So... Sometimes it clearly means being offended, kind of in the sense that we would use the word offended today. Upsetting someone, making them angry. In Matthew 15, verse 12, after Jesus says, it's not what enters the mouth that defiles the man, the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? They were scandalized. Matthew 17, verse 27, when Peter was asking about the temple tax. This, is, this happened just, just prior to this whole, this is right in the context of the sermon, really. He says, so that we do not offend them. Go cast your hook into the sea and catch a fish and you know the rest of the story. So we do not offend them. Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that's probably not the sense that uh, today's passage is using the word. Another way in which this word scandalizo can be translated is falling away from following Christ. Matthew 13, verse 21. Jesus is explaining about the parable of the sower and different meanings of, of, of different soils. And he talks about the, the rocky soil. He has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. He's scandalizoed. Matthew 24, verses 9 and 10, talking about signs of Christ's return. 
You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another. Same word. Matthew 26, warning his disciples after the Last Supper. He says, you will all fall away because of me tonight. And then in John 6, after he tells them about that he is the bread of life. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Now, another way in which this word is used, and I only found one example of this, is it seems to mean something like rejecting the gospel message. Like Jesus used this word, or, or the, the writer of the gospel used this word, rather, in Matthew 13, when Jesus went to his hometown in Nazareth. And they said, is not this the carpenter's son? And they took offense. Same word there. Sometimes it pretty clearly is talking about sin. And, and the best case of that is in, in Matthew 5, which we, I have here on your handout, because it's it's... Uh, It's essentially a parallel warning to what we're studying today. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Causes you to sin. It's the same word. It's better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away for it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So, what's it mean here in Mark chapter 9? Well, I've I've picked two criteria for for, um, picking a meaning, and for better or for worse, I hope they're correct. One is that it has to make sense kind of throughout the entire passage. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's fair to switch meanings from verse 42 to the subsequent verses. I think it should probably have the same sense in this passage here in Mark 9. Also, I think it ought to line up with how it's used over in Matthew chapter 5 because that is just, you know, essentially parts of that are word for word, exactly the same kind of warning. So the, the, the meaning we choose ought to make sense in both areas. I don't think... Um, clearly, it doesn't mean offending as in making someone mad. That, that doesn't make much sense. Now, I have to tell you, David Bersow has something kind of funny to say about when, when commentators or preachers use the word clearly. He says, be on guard, because usually when they use the word clearly, it's not clear at all, and they don't really have any support for it, and they're just using the word clearly. So clearly, it does not mean that, he's, that it's offending people in the sense that he's making them angry. Um, does it mean fall away? Well, that could make that that would make sense for verse forty-two, but it doesn't really make sense for the subsequent verses. You know, it wouldn't really make sense to wait to take a severe step against a sin habit in your life after you've fallen away, would it? So, I've kind of discarded that one. Does it mean rejecting the gospel, kind of like uh, the Naz- the people in Nazareth were offended at Christ? Well, that, that could make sense in some ways, but it doesn't really match up with Matthew 5 very well. It'd be hard to fit that meaning into that, to the Matthew 5 warnings. So I've decided it probably just means sin. That's what the ESV actually translates it as, causes to sin. 
It, it lines up pretty good with the Matthew 5 account, which is clearly talking about lust and a, and a sin problem there. It makes pretty good sense throughout this entire passage here in Mark 9. And we maybe we'll talk a little bit about if, it's, if it just means any kind of sin or, or something more ensnaring or a pattern. So we've decided so far this warning about the millstone is for anyone. We have decided that scandalizo means causing to sin in this passage. Now, who are we not supposed to cause to sin? One of these little ones. Does that mean literal children or does it mean spiritual children? Let the fight begin. Some reasons to think that it might mean literal children would be Jesus cares a lot about children. And this would sound very much in character for him to, to, to make these statements about literal children. I, I accept that. Um, also, children are an easy target for stumbling. That makes good sense. Also, Jesus was holding a literal child or embraced, you know, holding him in his arms probably while he was saying, at least when he started this sermon, I don't know if he still was when he was saying these things. So when he says one of these little ones, you might think, well, that seals it. He's definitely talking about what is right there in his arms. Well, not necessarily. The, the word these can also be referring to something that he has just been talking about, uh, a subject that he is, an idea that he has just raised and presented to the disciples. And there are several reasons why I think Jesus is really talking about spiritual children. Jesus himself has introduced this idea of spiritual children back in Matthew 18, verses 3 and 4. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God, of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus himself is introducing this idea of spiritual children. That could be what one of these little ones is referring to. A second reason why I think it's spiritual children is because it's, it's the emphasis of this, the emphasis of this entire discussion is really about relationships in the church, within the church, um, between brothers and the church. Matthew 18 talks about forgiving a brother, restoring a brother. Mark 9 ends with this command that I read here, have sought in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And this whole discussion did not start because of how the disciples were treating literal children. It started because of how they were treating each other and arguing with each other about who is the greatest. A third reason why I think it's literal children, I'm sorry, spiritual children, is because over in Matthew 18, there's a very a pretty strong transition between, this is in verses 14 and 15, where he goes from talking about little ones to where he's talking about the brother, a brother. He goes directly from little one to brother. And I think that would, would seem to suggest that they're referring to the same thing. It's, it's not a closed case. There's people far more knowledgeable than me on both sides of this argument. So if you decide not to agree with me and you think it, it is referring to literal children, I will not be offended. Now, 
How do we call someone to sin? We're going to look at, at the Matthew and, and Luke accounts here that, at the bottom of your handout. I, I, guess, I guess specifically the Luke one that makes it very plain here. Again, same word here, scandalizo. Probably getting tired of hearing it already, but it's there. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So if you are the one through whom the temptation comes, you're the next thing to being the one who has caused one of these little ones to sin. And that's how we call someone to sin, by being the source of temptation. The, the way it's put, remember, is this is, this is, this is a verb here. Uh, it's literally, if I put it in English, the one through whom the temptation came, he stumbled the one who fell. You could put it that way, maybe. It's, it's a, a pretty, pretty strong connection there. It doesn't say, you know, he just kind of tempted the other guy and the other guy fell. It says he, he stumbled him. The, the expression causing someone to sin is, is strong language, and, and we wouldn't typically say that. We would find it kind of objectionable if I would say, oh, this person over here caused that guy to sin. You know, that would be kind of, I don't know that we would accept something like that. Um, why do we find that so objectionable? Should we be a, a little more open to that idea? Well, we'll talk about that in a second. Now, now, now when I'm saying this thing about causing someone to sin, you may, be, you may be thinking in your mind that, hang on a second, now that you put it that way, this really makes sense about literal children. I mean, causing little ones to sin. That would make more sense about little children, not grown-ups. Well, I have a special passage for you. It comes from 1 Corinthians 8. I'll start at verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols. Eat food is really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ." And then if that wasn't strong enough, we've got verse 13, which happens to have the word scandalizo in it. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He's not talking about literal children there, is he? He's talking about brothers in the faith. Paul is very concerned about scandalizing, scandalizoing his brother. Uh, that brings us to the first reason why sin is so serious. I said there are three. Here's the first one. The first reason why sin is so serious is because we can be held accountable for the sins of others. If we provide temptation 
if we provided the temptation that someone else trips over, we get a significant amount of the blame. The other night, Colleen stumbled over some shoes I left out in the dark. She didn't fall down. But if she had, would it have been my fault? Well, she should know I never put my shoes away. Now, it would have been my fault, but that's, that is a, that's, a, that's not a very good analogy. And here's where I want to um, add a little bit of balance. The one who stumbles does have a choice, right? Uh, with every temptation, there comes a way of escape. So, he tripped me. That's, that's no excuse for falling into sin. It's no excuse for me rejecting the way of escape. But it should bother us a great deal that blame gets assigned to us when we are the ones through whom temptation comes. That should bother us. Now, you might think, well, does this apply to just any kind of sin, or is it only talking about really bad sins that are really ensnaring? It might be. He might be specifically talking about pride, maybe, or pride's uh, sins of selfish ambition, because that's kind of the context of this discussion. But he does not go out of his way to really clarify, and I'm, I'm reluctant to water it down. Uh, Paul set the bar pretty high over there in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 8 when he's so concerned about meat offered to idols. That wouldn't have struck me as being at least one of the worst kinds of sins, but he was very concerned about it. So here's the thing that strikes me. You know, for all our talk about accountability groups and asking each other tough questions and maintaining you know, a spirit of accountability, that is all good stuff. But the truth is that whether we do all of that or none of it, we are accountable. We are accountable. Some applications for this first idea of being accountable. One that we quickly think of is modesty. And it fits. It fits here. And it's not just for ladies. There are other applications. Recommending a book that has some questionable parts in it. I've done that before. That's not right. Forwarding a link that, you know, maybe that, maybe that content isn't that great. Playing that song when you're carpooling. Uh, sharing that juicy bit of gossip. Buying that expensive toy. Could that be cause for stumbling? These are things we need to think about. Does this mean that I constantly need to be aware of what affect my choices are having on my brothers. Yes, yes it does. And the only way you can do that with consistency is if you really decide that your brother is more important than you are. And oh, by the way, that is exactly what Jesus has just finished talking about. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Point number one, sin is serious because we can be held accountable for it now let's move on to verse 43. That was quite a while for verse 42. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What does this have to do with the millstone warning? Jesus has gotten out a piece of sidewalk chalk and he has drawn an arrow from the guy who stumbled to the guy who was the source of the temptation. And now he's drawing another arrow from the guy who was the source of the stumbling to the sin this guy is involved in. He's making a connection. 
That brings us to the second reason why sin is serious. It's serious because it's contaminating. If we're living in sin, we become a source of stumbling to others. The best way to avoid stumbling others is for us to be living holy lives ourselves. And we can, by, by living in sin, we can encourage them to sin or to react to our sin with, with in sinful ways, such as becoming bitter, angry, or cynical, or doubting. It's contaminating, and it so often affects the ones who are closest to us. We, we stumble the people that we care about the most, maybe husbands and wives and parents and children and brother, close friends. It's contaminating. It's a, an incredibly naive view would be to say that we can be involved in sin and not, and not become a source of contamination to others. It, it will come out in one way or another. If you have a sin problem, you are a source of contamination. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul said in Galatians 5. And this is one of the reasons why church discipline is important. One of, one of several reasons. Sin is serious because it is contaminating. Now we're ready for verses 43 through 48. Let me read verses 47 and 48 again. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What's worse than death by a millstone? Hell. Hell is. Their worm does not die. That's talking about an unending state of decay. This is a quote from the last verse of Isaiah. The word that's actually used here in the Greek is Gehenna. And as such, it has been the source of great argument. What does Gehenna mean? Is he literally talking about the valley to the, uh, on the south side of Jerusalem? Is he literally talking about that valley? Or is he talking figuratively about the lake of hell, uh, lake of fire, which we think of as hell? A lot of debate over this. Some people think he's literally talking about the valley and referring to something that happens in A.D. 70. But I strongly disagree, and I, I really don't, I don't have the time to go into all the reasons for why I believe this is figurative hell. Uh, I'm sorry, figurative Gehenna and referring to the real lake of fire. But I will say this, the Jews in Jesus' day did believe in an eternal punishment. They didn't believe necessarily that all sinners would go there. They, they thought that only the worst sinners would actually go there for eternity. But they did have the concept of an eternal place of judgment. And they used the Valley of Gehenna in a figurative sense to refer to this eternal place of judgment. In between the Testaments, it became it was an ugly place, a nasty place, constantly burning, and they began to use it figuratively to refer to the lake of fire. And it wouldn't, and Jesus here, who describes this as eternal and unquenchable, it, it wouldn't have made sense for him to be referring to some specific event that happens 40 years later and ends up with corpses in Gehenna. So I, I believe this is hell, and that is an accurate translation, the lake of fire. Now, does this warning really apply to us this morning as believers? This warning that if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, 
it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Does that apply to us this morning as believers? Well, I think it does. But there is a way to interpret this warning so that it doesn't. And let's look at that quickly. Usually when we hear the word kingdom of God, we're not necessarily talking about entering into the eternal reward. We're talking about becoming a member of Christ's kingdom. We're becoming a Christian. We're a follower of Christ. When you enter the kingdom of God, you have, you're under Christ's lordship. You, you, something has happened inside of you. You're a member of the kingdom. Not necessarily heaven. So when you could say, you could argue that these warnings are addressed to someone who is not yet in the kingdom, and it's saying that you need to take an extreme attitude about whatever is hindering you from entering that kingdom. And you need to leave sin. Remember, we decided this means sin. In order to enter the kingdom and become a member of that kingdom of God. It does say entering the kingdom of God here in Mark 9. After all, Jesus has just finished telling his disciples that unless they turned, they could not enter the kingdom of God. So there was a change needed. Now, the reason I'm giving this some I'm spending some time on this because I think it, it, it has a, a major outcome in the emphasis of this, of this passage. The reason that I've, I've got a few reasons why I don't agree with that interpretation. One is, I don't think it fits very well with the warning over in Matthew chapter 5 that we looked at about adultery. Um, Jesus is not necessarily talking about adultery dealing with the sin of adultery so that you're able to enter the kingdom of God and ripping out your, your, your eye or whatever. He's not, he doesn't talk, he's talking about avoiding hell. He's not talking about criteria necessarily for entering the kingdom in Matthew 5. Also, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you talk about the warning of the millstone. Uh, if, if we say that you need to do whatever it takes to enter the kingdom of God, otherwise you might offend one of these little ones and end up with a punishment worse than a millstone? I mean, if you're not, if you're refusing to enter the kingdom of God, it sounds like you're kind of already in a bad place, doesn't it? Also, if Jesus is talking about dealing with sin problems, it'd be kind of odd, maybe, for him to require people to cut off even the things that lead to sin, and that'd be a prerequisite for, for becoming becoming a follower of his, it would seem much more natural to me for that to be a call to someone who is already regenerated and needs to lay off the old life and lay off the old nature and make no provision for the flesh. Couple, one more yet, two more. In spite of the fact that Jesus, so this entering the kingdom of God here is, is you know, we're going to zero in on that phrase here. That kingdom of God does not in every case talk about a current reality. Sometimes it does refer to an, a future reality that comes after judgment. The one case that I have in mind, and maybe this is the only case that I can say with, with surety, would be the parable about the wise and foolish virgins. Now they're waiting for, the, for, the, for that um, kingdom of God to arrive, and I believe he actually uses the term kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven there. So in that sense, it's used in a future sense. And I think here in this passage, it's used to a future reality that comes after the judgment. Depending on your viewpoint, this could be the best or the worst reason. 
that I could not find a single commentator who really went down this, this path with this particular interpretation with me. And usually when something occurs to me that doesn't occur to a whole bunch of other people, that's a bad sign. So, I believe that kingdom of God is, is used in the sense of a future reality. And I believe what he's saying is that if you're not at a place where you are willing to make serious sacrifices to deal with a sin problem, you're at a dangerous place. Tolerating sin can destroy us spiritually. That is my third reason for why sin is so serious. What would you do to escape horrible death? Back in 2003, there's a hiker, Aaron Ralston. He was canyoneering, canyoneering, however you say that, by himself in Utah. And you may remember this story. At some point in his hike, now I think he's going along the side of a canyon wall, a boulder falls on his arm, on his wrist, hand, something out here, and crushes it. And he's trapped with this heavy boulder on his hand. And he tries all sorts of things to, to make the boulder move, and he can't make it move. So after five days, no one knows he's out here hiking by himself, by the way. After five days, he's, he's running out of food and water. And he realizes that he's going to die unless he does something drastic. <clears throat> and you know those, those um, le- it, tools, kind of like a leather man? It, it wasn't a leather man. It was probably an inferior brand. But the little knives that come with them, like a two-inch knife, he used that thing to hack off his forearm. He cut it off. Now, it was already you know, crushed and, and mangled and probably had lost a great deal of feeling already, but he cut it off. And so he was able to hike out and find some people who could help him. So we are promised a way of escape with, with every temptation. Sometimes we wish it was like a, a, a magic elevator, but it's not. Sometimes the way of escape is more like climbing a rock wall. <clears throat> now I want to make a few observations about this hand, eye, or foot. Jesus is describing something kind of grotesque and very painful. I can imagine the disciples inwardly cringing as he's talking about gouging out their eye or hacking off a hand. It would be hard for him to choose more extreme language. It's a sacrifice that really hurts. And this is the, this is the extreme to which we ought to go to free ourselves from a sin problem. There's nothing inherently evil about a hand eye or foot, they can be used for evil, they can be used for good. It's extremely painful to remove them. We get attached to things. We get attached to them because we are sentimental about them, because it is just a whole lot of fun, because there's a romantic interest, because they are hugely convenient and huge time savers. Uh, We get attached to things because they are a source of security, and we can't imagine doing without them. But those are not reasons for putting up with a snare. They're not reasons to do that. You might, you might find it hard to imagine yourselves cutting off some of these things that lead to sin. 
but think about cutting off your arm or putting out an eye. It would be hard to, to ma manage without one of those. You might think it'd be so hard to manage without one of those, but that's what Jesus says we should do. Hebrews 12, verse 4, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And he might be saying, you have not gone far enough in your stand against sin. You have not really committed yourself to this fight yet. Or he might be saying, persecution's on the way and it's going to cost you some blood to stand. Either way, he's saying, stand whatever it takes. Now, there's a few ways in which we can take this the wrong way and get out of balance. Like every truth in the Bible, we can warp this one if we take it way out of, of balance. Literally, please do not cut off your hand, your foot, or put out an eye. This especially goes for those of you who work with power tools. Jesus is speaking figuratively here. Uh, Jesus often spoke figuratively when he was talking about the leaven of the Pharisees. He wasn't really saying that the Pharisees were baking bread. He clearly said, and clearly, I mean, it's actually in the scripture there. He was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees. So he was speaking figuratively there. I think he's speaking figuratively here. Another thing, another way we can get out of balance is by saying that our salvation depends on us making a whole bunch of really extreme sacrifices and that if you've made enough of these, well then, you've made it, you've earned your salvation. I smashed my internet router, now I deserve to go to heaven. That, that is not the way to take this. Um, striving to enter the, the straight gate doesn't mean you deserve to enter the straight gate. Another way to take this wrong, and I kind of mentioned this earlier, is that it is, is to come up with the idea that your salvation depends on you staying completely and absolutely free of sin. No, uh, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. You will always have to lean on God's grace and his forgiveness. And at the risk of watering down Jesus' words a bit here, I don't think that he's saying that every single occurrence of sin ought to result in us something fencing off something in our lives. Otherwise, we'd be you know, living in desert caves pretty soon. I think he's talking about sin Maybe sin that's especially ensnaring, but I think sin that has been ensnaring to us and, is, and there's a pattern there that we need to deal with. It's a pattern. How should we apply this? Well, if you've sinned, repent. That means you're serious about not doing this again. And don't just ask for forgiveness and move on. Stop and think about what you were doing Right before you did that face plant, look around you. Are there other imprints of face plants on the ground around you? Did you do this before? Every time you go down this path, do you end up on your face? That's a problem. Is it your duty? Do you have some kind of calling to go down this path? There are some things that we are called to do. Teaching Bible school. Don't stop teaching Bible school just because you got angry at one of your students once. If it's, but if it's not your call and your duty to go down this particular path, it's probably your duty to cut it off and say, I'm not going there anymore. And, and maybe not cut it off forever, but cut it off for some period of time, at least until you're honestly sure that it's not going to ensnare you again. There are lots of ways we can apply this to different sin problems. Immorality, websites, reading material, pride. Well, maybe be more stealthy about your accomplishments. You don't have to let everybody know. Gossip. Don't let them tell you. 
You can cut that off. You can even cut off the relationship if you absolutely have to. Gluttony. Have you ever decided you're not going to go to that restaurant because of the sin of gluttony? Or you're not going to order that menu item because of the sin of gluttony? That's, that applies to me. Anger. Competitive games. I used to always get mad and I played Risk. I decided not to play Risk, not really because I was being... Um, yeah, it was more because it wasn't fun if I got mad than that I was concerned about the anger problem. But if you get mad every time you play basketball, maybe you should give it a break. Covetousness. We get these Southern Living magazines. Spend too much time in there and you'll start wishing for a bunch of stuff you don't have. Covetousness. You know what would be really extreme would be to put more money in the offering. That would sound like something Jesus would recommend. There are lots of ways we can apply this pretty brutal measures to getting rid of sin problems in our lives. And we should, we should consider that. We should consider it. Sin is serious. It's serious because we can be accountable for the sins of others. It's serious because it is contaminating. And it's serious because if we ignore a sin problem, it can destroy us spiritually. So let's be sensitive and careful not to be a source of temptation to others And let's be on guard in our own lives and look out for these patterns and be willing to take severe measures to deal with them. God bless you.